Hello, everyone. Welcome to the American Blue Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet. I'm the CEO of Ocean STL Consulting and former Deputy Administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, as well as a former Assistant Secretary of Commerce and before that, the Oceanographer of the Navy. We are a monthly offering by the American Shoreline Podcast Network and brought to you by Coastal News Today. The American Blue Economy Podcast brings together leading voices in the ocean, coastal, and Great Lakes-based economies to expand awareness and collaboration, identify positive solutions to address the many challenges to the ocean economy, such as conflicting uses and climate change, and provide thought leadership to support continued booming ocean economy. So in this episode, it's a special edition of our show where we get to meet Dr. Kate Musumichi. Her recently published book is called Lethal Tides, Mary Sears and the Marine Scientist Who Helped Win World War II. And I am just so excited about this because Mary Sears is basically my predecessor. She was the first uniformed modern oceanographer of the Navy. And uh, this is just going to be a real treat. And we're going to connect how, as I have in previous episodes, how the Navy and ocean science and blue tech have contributed to the blue economy. Now, we'll get to see where all that started with Mary Sears. But before we begin, I'd like our listeners to know that our media team at Coastal News Today is looking for sponsors. And if you are interested in becoming a sponsor, please contact Tyler Buckingham. He's at Tyler at coastalnewstoday.com or go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising. Well, all right. I am just so delighted to introduce you, Kate. Dr. Kate Musumichi, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much, Admiral. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here and to be with a former oceanographer of the Navy. I've spent quite a bit of time researching and uh, writing about one, so it's great to actually be speaking to one. Well, you sure have. I understand you you researched your book for four years, and you know this is something I worked for thirty two years in. That, that's a field that I've been studying for that long, over three decades. And you just masterfully uh, captured the beginning and every every aspect about it. Um, I have to ask you then, before we begin, your dedication is to someone very special to you. Uh, can you talk about your dad? Oh, yeah, to my father. Yes. Well, uh, my dad was a 17-year-old sailor in World War II. And um, at right at before Veterans Day of 2017, I wanted to do something special for him. So I actually baked a cake in the shape of the LST that he served on. I believe oh, you. Gosh. I believe you know what an LST is, Tim. Don't I you? I sure do. Yeah, you know that wasn't easy to put that thing together, and then I had to pack it and drive it three hundred miles. But when I got there to Orange, Texas, Dad and I, I, I said he was ninety then, and I said, "Hey, let's let's take your oral history of World War II because we had never he had never spoken about the war. He was that generation that just didn't speak about it." And that was the first time I learned that he had been at some of the same invasions, uh, Peleliu, he was at Okinawa, he was in the occupation of Japan, some of the same uh, invasions that Mary Sears had provided oceanographic intelligence for. So that kind of formed a connection there and uh, sort of cemented 
uh, my decision to write this book. That's so neat. And uh, for our listeners, an LST is an amphibious ship. And this book really centers around the war in the World War II in the Pacific, where the U.S. Navy conducted an island hopping campaign of amphibious landings from island to island, moving west westward towards Japan. And uh, and and Dr. Kate's father, Frank, was a quartermaster and served on one of those ships. And we'll go through some of those those battles. And there's deep connections I have because. I was on a ship named after one of them, and then and I have many connections here to everything you wrote about, Kate. But let's kind of, if you don't mind, I'm I want to do a, a little bit of a journey through through the novel or through the through your book and the history of it, and um and then the opening though sets the scene so well. You have an opening quote by a Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution director. Uh, this was Columbus O'Donnell Islin, and um, do you happen to remember it, or should I say it for you? Uh, well. I have my copy uh, of the book here, and I can turn to it very quickly. I don't have it memorized, but it basically what Iceland said was the ocean would serve neither side in the war. It would merely treat more kindly those who knew it best. Yes, and I love that quote because that's, you know, knowing the ocean and knowing how not to be defeated by it really is uh, – you talk about it. You talk about it being another possible enemy. And that, that's what I spent an entire career on, is, is doing that for the Navy, helping us know the ocean better than our adversaries. I, I actually was at a command that supported Navy SEALs, and we made a little command coin. And our, the quote I put on there was, uh, we know the ocean better than Neptune. And uh, and that was that was our mission. Oh, wow. And so, it, yeah. That's it, pretty it, awesome. This, you, I, I just can't praise you enough for capturing all the, the <laughs> essence of what my community in the Navy did. And, and now this is a community that's very much a foundational to uh, both national security and our, our national economy. It's just it's so ocean based and depends on the technology the Navy's developed. But, but knowing the ocean, is, is, you couldn't have picked a better opening quote. Um, but then going through it, and I, I, uh, we, we learn about this, this woman, Mary Sears, growing up in Massachusetts. And the thing that struck me the most, uh, like when, on the opening chapter of uh, Mary growing up in Massachusetts and then choosing to go to Woods Hole, and, and or really she went to Ratcliffe first, uh, the, the college associated with Harvard. But the, the thing that hit me was that uh, women couldn't go to sea at Woods Hole. And that, this is a kind of a big issue that runs through most of your book. Uh, just, what are your thoughts on that? Because you, you definitely expounded upon that issue. And, and, and I think a theme in the book is how back then, and, and I think it was at our loss, that we, we didn't appreciate uh, women and their capabilities in science. What, what can you say about that? Well, it wasn't just Woods Hole where women couldn't go uh, to sea on overnight expeditions. It was uh, most of the United States I think uh, there. I did find a, an exception at the University of Washington, where Tommy Tommy Thompson was chairman there, and he he was a big proponent of women and let them on the the ship, the Catalyst, their research ship. But for by and large, and this was the policy at Scripps Oceanographic Institution also, and um, foreign countries uh, were a little more lenient, like Russia. Um, but this went back to the superstitions that from the time of Odysseus that women were bad women on ships were bad bad luck. 
And uh, this was just a myth that persisted for a very, very long time, probably until the uh, late 50s, early, early 60s. And I, I think there's no question that this impacted Mary Sears' research career, because uh, after the war, her, her actual bench research kind of uh, tapered off, but she found other ways to contribute to oceanography. And she became uh, the pivotal, pivotal person, at least in this country, that helped organize oceanography as a scientific specialty. She uh, co-edited the first major journal of oceanography, Deep Sea Research, uh, yes, with, I'm familiar with that. Yes, with a with a, a woman from uh, from Great Britain who was her co-editor, and then she uh, held the first international oceanographic conference in uh, New York City. I think it was 1965 or something at the United Nations, and Mary Sears had uh, connections all over the world with oceanographers, and uh, she basically held the specialty together. Yeah, this was a, exactly, you, again, you captured this so well, and you not being an oceanographer like me, uh, you had me fooled because you really mastered the field so well. And and you you talk also about how she brought those international connections to bear and uh, all the support she provided the Navy, which we'll get a little bit into. But you have a wonderful quote. You, you, you are just a superb writer. And I, I love this. It, you talked about the fact that men went to sea at Woods Hole and the women weren't allowed to. And, and, you know, the, the, the tradition of the age of sale of women being bad luck. And you said all this while perpetrating the striking paradox that a female body carved into the bow of a ship would bring good <laughs> luck. <laughs> well said there. Yeah. I mean, it seems kind of obvious to me. Like you're, you're right. I'm not an oceanographer. And, and when I was speaking recently at the Naval Oceanographic Office, I, I made sure they knew that my, my oceanographic knowledge ends at at the conclusion of World War II. <clears throat> so they wouldn't ask me any hard questions about oceanography today. But I, you know, I'm not an oceanographer and I'm not a historian, but I recognize something about Mary Sears. And she was in this generation of women that helped uh, educate and train me in medicine. And they were just a very small sliver uh, of the profession and inhabiting whatever corner the men allowed them to inhabit. But most of them were simply brilliant and, and had to be, they couldn't afford to be sloppy or lazy or not do the very best job because they wouldn't be where they were if that were the case. So I recognize that in Mary Sears. And, and I think that was one of the reasons I, I felt like I wanted to write about her. I, I'm so glad you did. And that's an interesting thing. One of the um, like the the way in ac academia that the men, the professors, were kind of um, elite and sort of carved out, and the women weren't really given. I mean, you, you talked about this at Harvard and, and Radcliffe, and um, you used the term for some of the women colleges there that were derogatorily called spinster factories. And uh, I, you know, just you paint a great picture, which I know to be true. Not a good. It's not a good picture. I mean, but a very well. A well-researched picture of how it was then, and I'm I, being a father of three daughters, I'm very glad we've we've made progress since then. And one of the lessons here I thought was important is Mary basically got a mentor through Dr. Henry Bryant Bigelow, 
who was at Harvard. And interestingly, like so many times in this book, you know, I had these connections. I was an acting NOAA administrator, and one of our ships was named after Bigelow. So you see NOAA and the Navy really woven through this elements of NOAA and the Navy in modern times. And the history that brought us to where we are uh, is just richly described in your book. But can you talk a little bit about uh, Bigelow and how he, he brought Mary on? Well, Bigelow at the time was the foremost uh, marine biologist in this country and possibly the entire world. And Mary Sears used to say that he was the one person who understood all facets of uh, oceanography. And they met fortuitously. Uh, Bigelow uh, would would study his plankton specimens uh, on the top floor of, of the Harvard Library, and Mary Sears was relegated to a small room up there where women were allowed, because most of the Harvard Library was off, you know, off limits to women. And I think he noticed something about Mary Sears, that uh, how studious and attentive she was, and and that she could sit at a microscope for hours on end. And they met in the hallway, and he offered her a job. And after that, Mary Sears was off and running because she had this a great role model in Bigelow. And around that same time, uh, Bigelow had been asked to write, I guess what we would call today a proposal or a grant uh, to support a, a new oceanographic institution on the East Coast that would become Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. And um, he took Mary to Woods Hole when he would go there in the summers uh, to, and she could take courses at the uh, Marine Biological Lab or, or help him with his research. And then when he came back in the academic year, she would go back to you know, graduate school or, or what have you. And there was a really close association there. And, and I think without it, Mary uh, probably would not have chosen to go into oceanography and wouldn't have been able to. Yes. And I, I thought that was so interesting and compelling because Really, that's so so common in life. You know, having doors are opened by certain special people, and it, were, were it not for them, and I have a long list of those people in my life, and uh, and I, I saw that, and just it's it's a good lesson too for people like us who are a little farther along in, in their life and careers to, that get help lending a hand to others and doing that for um, for the people who are, have potential is can make all the difference in the world. And you know, if Bigelow had never reached out to Mary, I, who knows what, where I would be and if my community ever would have gotten to where it is and, and if how many lives weren't, wouldn't have been saved through her important ocean information. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. But yeah, you did, you did kind of um, on Bigelow, which is interesting, for all the good that he did and starting Woods Hole, the very first director of Woods Hole and bringing Mary Sears on as his assistant, you did, you still kind of, you, you noticed that he still never let women on the research ship Atlantis, the first Woods Hole research. So he still was held back by the times, unfortunately. And, um, and that, that's just something that was, that was something I noticed about there. And it just, it just took too long. I think it was the sixties that Woods Hole in 1959 at Scripps where women are finally allowed to go to sea. Right. I mean, Bigelow was maintaining um, the, the status quo. Um, and yeah, given, given the times and, and, 
where he came from and the traditions he grew up with. I mean, Bigelow was a seafaring uh, researcher, and he went on many, many expeditions with some very famous people, and there were no women uh, aboard these ships. So he he was maintaining uh, the the status quo, uh, and it you know it couldn't help but hurt uh, Mary Sears. Uh, career because it was at sea that uh, many discoveries were made just by observation uh, or in situ, and she didn't have the benefit of that. She didn't have the benefit of the the camaraderie and all that that happens on the the ships. And I kind of say it's like letting someone train in surgery but not letting them go to the operating room. Right. I mean, because, you know, the ship was the operating room. That's where you applied your skills uh, in, a, in that environment. So she was relegated to having others collect her specimens, and, and that, you know, excluded some of her experience that I think not only uh, did she not get the full appreciation uh, for the collection, um, but it, it, it had to affect her motivation to do so, you know, just time after time getting these specimens that weren't were not exactly labeled and preserved the way she would have done it. So, I mean, I think that's part of the reason she she had to head to Peru on on the verge of a of a world war and take advantage of that opportunity. Yeah, and you you describe that experience quite well. They're researching the impact of El Nino on the the fisheries there, the anchovy fishery, and she was showed some grit. <laughs> Absolutely, living on those fishing <laughs> boats, which is really a, a, another story altogether. Um, but then when she did come back and, and work for Bigelow, um, I, that, this is then the, then the war. She came back to a, basically a world war, the U.S. at war. And, um, and it was interesting how Woods Hole transformed, where you really do a great job at this, too, helping people immerse them, and the readers immerse themselves in the history of the time and, and, uh, and how the Navy just funded so much contract work. And there was just many, many people sort of in kind of invading uh, the, the Cape. And, um, but I, what I, I think what struck me the most was when um, you brought in another really key mentor ally, and that was uh, Navy Lieutenant, um, former Scripps researcher, Roger Ravel, who eventually became a Scripps director. And for Scripps graduates like me, Ro- Roger is royalty. <laughs> and, um, and, and I never knew all this about him. And having this link and having him really start naval oceanography through Mary Sears, can, can you talk to our readers a little bit about about that that how that became about? Well, Roger Ravel was a larger than life character. I think he came out of the womb that way, as far as I can tell. <laughs> and, yes, uh, Ravel uh, at the beginning of the war, Ravel was uh, what we might characterize as a marine geologist. And he had already been in the Navy before before uh, we declared war. And um, he was assigned jointly to the Naval Hydrographic Office and um, to the uh, Bureau of Ships. And he did not, he, he had this view of the Hydrographic Office that it was a, I think he called it a dull map making place. And he wanted to get out of that assignment and spend uh, most of his time on the front lines, going to sea, being involved with research projects uh, at the Bureau of Ships. So he he planned a visit to to Woods Hole, 
and Columbus Iceland had taken over as the second director by then of, uh, of Woods Hole. And he sat down with Iceland and said, you know, I, I was wondering if you could part with, with one of your oceanographers. And of course, at that time, you know, Woods Hole was just buried in, in naval research. And Iceland said, no, there's no possible way I can, I can part with everybody's busy. But Ravel sort of leaned on him, and I think he suggested that you know he Ravel would be in charge of of where some of these some of this grant money would go. So he really wanted Columbus Iceland to to come up with the name. So Iceland said, "You can have her," meaning Mary Sears, the only woman oceanographer uh, at Woods Hole. So. Uh, Ravel went and stood in, in the doorway of Mary Sears' office and, uh, you know, basically sized her up and, and decided she would do. And she told him she had already applied to the waves and been, been rejected because of uh, a bout of what they were calling arthritis. It was probably something else. It was some tr- transient something that they had excluded her. So then Ravel had to had to go back to the hydrographic office and deal with Admiral Bryan and work on getting this uh, medical waiver so Mary could get new waves. And, and he was successful in doing that. And thank goodness Ravel did that because that then opened the door for Mary Sears to become the first uh, full-time oceanographer at the hydrographic office. Right. And I, that was a great story to, because of that, that kind of going above and beyond for her and helping her get over that waiver. Um, the, in fact, the, the medical waiver, and you actually talk about this, how you, the government bureaucracy can be foolish at times. And that was really a great example of that. Here was this very capable person. I mean, Mary was in her thirties then she had a PhD and for her to get rejected by the waves was ridiculous. And for our listeners, the waves in World War II was a program, a new program that to get women into the Navy and the term stands for Women Accepted for Voluntary Emergency Service. And the whole program was established by Congress in a bill passed in July of 1942. And that timing was perfect for Mary. And so she became one of these waves through Roger Revelle's help and, uh, and put on. And I really I love this, um, Kate, because you talk about her and you should have a great picture of her in the book wearing her new uniform and her hat. And this is this is the uniform I wore for, for, for 32 years. <laughs> And, uh, and I just, I felt a great deal of pride uh, reading about her and becoming one of these early women in the Navy and certainly first woman oceanographer and really first oceanographer. And uh, this is this is where I come from. And, and so I, I really uh, admired how you did that. Now, getting to Admiral Bryan, this is interesting to me because um, Admiral Bryan uh, was head of this hydrographic office, which they called Hydro. And it eventually became the Naval Oceanographic Office, which we kind of term, uh, we abbreviate NAVO. And I was in charge of that uh, for a time when I was an admiral. So Admiral Bryant was in a bit, my, was in a, kind of a way at my equivalent. And you talk about this being founded as the Depot of Charts and Instruments in 1830. And for what it's worth, I was, that, that became the U.S. Naval uh, Observatory uh, and then, and so it kind of split off. Hydro became the, the charting, and the, the observatory was where this depot and charts of instruments originated. It was like a division of the observatory. But long story short, I was the superintendent of the Naval Observatory also. So 
you kind of were writing about the origins of my entire career in this book for what it's <laughs> worth. But what's neat about this is the Navy has all these origins in science and technology you know, that, that stem from the need for safe navigation at sea. So observatory for time and star catalogs for celestial navigation, et cetera, hydro for hydrography and charts. And uh, it's, it's really, you, 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 you didn't miss a beat. You captured this perfectly, but don't let me, uh, um, don't let me digress. And um, what, what's a good about the story here is that um, Mary gets into the waves and she joins us hydro and, and she creates a job for herself. Admiral Brian realized he, he needed an oceanographer and you talk and that, the, the, uh, the Navy and the Joint Chiefs of Staff were standing up this oceanography committee to deal with all the oceanography needs of the fighting forces out in the Pacific and Atlantic. And so maybe if you wouldn't mind, Kate, talk about the origins of this oceanographic unit, which she stood up and, and the things they did. Well, first of all, thank you, Tim, for saying saying all that about the the book and the history. And, you know, I, I heard a lot of those similar comments when I was at the uh, Naval Hydrographic Office last week. And all I can say is I felt, I feel like I finally found, found my tribe uh, oh, <laughs> because uh, you are the people that really get this, get this book. Uh, but so when Mary Sears uh, reported to duty, I think I believe it was April of 1943, she was a one-woman oceanographic unit sitting at a desk crammed into the uh, Maritime Security Division of the Hydrographic Office. And, um, of course, there was a backlog of requests. What, you know, just people had been sending requests for, for information and no one to answer it. But just think about that. We had been at war for a year and a half before the first full-time uh, naval oceanographer took her took her place there, and no doubt those delays contributed to a number of mishaps uh, in landings and at sea. But uh, when Mary got there in April of '43, shortly after she uh, got there, she was able to recruit some people to join her, and um, I call these people the quirky band of marine biologists. Uh, there, yeah, there oh, was, yes. these are not who you would think of that uh, would be ideal uh, military oceanographers, but there were only about a hundred oceanographers in the country at that time, people that called themselves that. And um, there was a real shortage of scientists. So Mary was able to, uh, she was able to acquire Fenner Chase, who was a hermit crab uh, specialist from Harvard. And she had Dora Henry, who was a barnacle expert from the universe, University of Washington. And luckily, she had the very talented oceanographic librarian, Mary Sears. And they joined her uh, there to help answering uh, answer some of these requests. And one of the first projects that they were handed um, was a, these... Uh, to, to do the oceanography chapter on what were called the Janus reports, the joint army Navy uh, intelligence studies. And I'm just curious, Tim, had you heard of these before? Oh yeah. Yes, I have. Yeah. Okay. So you were familiar with these and what these were uh, when, 
when Franklin Roosevelt and the Joint Chiefs would meet with the British uh, Joint Chiefs, they they always felt like they were bested by the British because they could pull out a white paper on any place that they were talking about having uh, some kind of naval operation or military operation. And FDR uh, came back to his Joint Chiefs and said, look, we we need to have these same kind of studies being done. So the Joint Chiefs started a, a, a group called the Joint uh, Intelligence Studies Publishing Board, and they were tasked with uh, producing massive reports, these Janus reports, on any area any that they were likely to have uh, active combat operations. And this required, I think it was something like 27 agencies had to uh, contribute to these reports. Long story short, uh, this this was a huge task, but also a feather in the cap of Mary Sears because she had hadn't been there very long, and here she was doing doing work for the Joint Chiefs on not just one committee, the Joint Chiefs uh, Oceanographic Subcommittee, but also this Joint Intelligence uh, Study Board, and um, these reports were just amazing. They had uh, 33 different, they covered 33 different oceanographic parameters, and they required, just to compile the information required, first of all, a great deal of research, especially on the part of Mary Greer, who had to go all over Washington looking for um, data in the libraries, um, data on you know on waves tides something she could find in the published literature mary sears would go to some of the government agencies and um this four-person team would all work together on the ocean oceanography chapter of the reports and um most of them uh, had to do with the pacific campaign and covering uh different Offensives there. So this this is one of the major legacies of Mary Sears' time at the hydrographic office. Well, yes, it's, it's interesting too because when I was an admiral in the Pentagon, uh, it it kind of worked the same way with requirements coming down from the Joint Chiefs of Staff and all the services having to kind of support them um, for any kind of operation. And um, and it, so it was, that that was interesting to me. Uh, but also what I found, I, I was amazed at that small four-person team, which I knew grew to be about 15, that uh, they, they could accomplish so much. And oceanography was one of a lot of elements of these intelligence reports. The JANA stands for what? Joint Army Navy Intelligence Study. Is, is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. And, and the oceanography check section, this small team without computers, without PCs, and without email, put together right. these rich and detailed assessments that, that looked at sea state and currents and beach type and, and, and um, bottom sea floor composition. And, um, and the 33 parameters were dictated by Roger Ravel, actually. And there, these are all the things that my community of oceanographers and aerographers mates uh, have, have basically, that's their job. <laughs> They've standardized this and we have much greater collection systems um, also included were things getting, getting these bathy thermograph profiles from um, Scripps and Woods Hole, uh, which characterized the temperature gradients in the ocean, which uh, dictate how sound travels. And therefore, for submarines, they use that information where to hide. 
So the safety of amphibious landings in, in view of the threats posed by sea state or coral reefs, the, the impact of the ocean thermal structure on submarine warfare. This was just incredibly important data. And this small little group was putting it together for all these major Pacific campaigns uh, on paper without computers. I, it just blew me away. Well, you, you're absolutely right. I mean, they're doing this without computers. There weren't even copiers, photocopiers then. So, right. you know, just how Mary Sears got that, Mary Greer got this information back. I mean, I, I just imagine that she was just hand copying a lot of it because my research told me that there weren't photocopiers in, in libraries and only, there were some maybe primitive precursors to photocopies, but they were only used for photographs. So Mary Sears, uh, Mary Greer was very careful about uh, covering her tracks in the library in case there were spies that were trying to follow her around and, and get a jump on some of these military operations. Uh, she had a really uh, tough job. And on top of it, during the day, while she was out uh, looking for things, they might get an emergency request for another area. So she had to call in several times a day to the office. And if there was an emergency location that needed to uh, be described, Mary Sears would have to, to describe it to Mary Greer in such a way that anybody listening into the phone line wouldn't know where or what she was talking about. So they had a code language between them uh, to communicate. So, yeah, there were all these little quirks of the time just based on uh, the lack of of technology. But I'll, I'll tell you, I was when I was at the Naval Hydrographic, not Naval Oceanographic Office last week, I saw the new version of the, uh, the, the glider that collects the bathythermograph uh, temperature uh, versus depth data. And that thing is amazing. It's, it's an autonomous missile looking thing that you can just uh, launch from a from a, the deck of a ship, and the thing just travels the ocean collecting this information and conveying it back electronically. No one has to risk their life uh, leaning off the side of a ship at, during wartime to collect this anymore. So that's pretty impressive. Interesting, yes. So as you say, the, the old way was letting a, a bathythermograph profile drop alongside the ship, and, and then you have to recover it. And nowadays we use these ocean drones. And you're right. When I was the oceanographer of the Navy, we had a fleet over a hundred. I think they've grown that now. They're operating all across the world's oceans, and and NOAA is doing the same thing. And we've NOAA has expanded out using surface drones, little like all the boats, for example, uh, that participated in these amphibious landings. Well. Nowadays, a lot of these are, are autonomous vessels or drones that we're using for collection and other things like you see in modern warfare. So it's a, you're right. It's interesting. I'm glad you got to see that. Um, you there, There's uh, so many great parts of this book that I connected to, uh, you know, this little unit that Mary Sears was in charge of, four people initially, it eventually was called the Oceanographic Unit. And, and then you talked about the hydrographic ships, which provided some of the data for the chart makers at, in, in, the, in, in the U.S. Hydro Office, like the USS Sumner and, and the USS Pathfinder, which eventually became USNS, U.S. Naval Ships, which I've served on several. And uh, I did that exact mission 
we never had weapons on ours because it wasn't wartime. So that was a difference. I'm glad, <laughs> but, but right. ultimately that, you know, that resonated with me quite a bit. And, uh, and, and, you know, this is inf- interesting for our listeners because all of this information is, is critical now to civil applications, whether it be for, you know, the wind, wind energy development, uh, hydrographic surveys are critical to doing that effectively as well as, as well as, uh, natural gas and oil uh, that are currently still being, you know, in, uh, operated. That's those surveys are absolutely necessary using hydrography and 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 these drone systems more and more, and, and the data, et cetera, that like the type of oceanographic data. Uh, other applications that that really are relevant. We've had many people on our on our series of episodes talk about uh, are um, um, the like using satellite data. Think about if they had the optical satellite data you know back then what they could have done in terms of mapping and um and just and, and laying out the information that that the, the hydro office did it's interesting it's just very interesting to me kate that um we're really lucky right now <laughs> because we have right. such great technology and they sure did a lot with a little yeah well it seems like they did um you know they just they they just went out there and and found the information and and you know ship captains collected some of this data for them uh, the bathythermograph data and uh, submarine uh, skippers made observations about the uh, temperature gradients and sent that stuff back to Mary Sears and she would include it in this these uh, submarine supplements. Um, which, you know, when the Navy eventually named a ship after Mary Sears, uh, the Secretary of the Navy, Danzig, uh, cited Mary Sears' work uh, in submarine warfare as being a, uh, one of the main reasons uh, this ship was being named after her. And yeah, I made a long list of all the things that Mary Sears had done uh, during, during her time there at the hydrographic office. But I also know that because she was working and intelligence. Uh, some of her clandestine activities we, we still may not know about. We still may, do not know, I believe, the full extent of Mary Sears' work during World War II. That's true, because uh, uh, most of that was probably shredded. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and really, that, that classified information, especially after World War II, when there was just such a, a big push to consolidate uh, you know, the military's footprint, um, and that's that's too bad. But I, I know I did right. I did think that was great when the USNS Mary Sears was christened and Secretary of the Navy Danzig cited those submarine reports. Um, that's exactly what I was talking about. Is I, I that, that might have been submarine warfare. Uh, we we conducted unrestricted submarine warfare on Japan, and that that uh, was critical to winning the war in the Pacific uh, because it really just cut off supplies to the island and. It was, you know, they they never would have held out. They they could have lasted long, even despite the atomic bombs, if we had not cut off their supply lines through submarine warfare. And Mary Sears had a hand in that. Um, Interestingly, too, I want to go back to one of the people you mentioned, and that's Mary Greer, the oceanographic librarian from University of Washington. She was no mere librarian, as you mentioned, and I love to use this term because it's perfect. She was an ocean intelligence expert. And uh, nowadays, we talk a lot about data, big data analytics, and, and she was a data scientist and a, and a premier one and probably the first ocean data scientist um, 
truly. And, and what, I, what amazed me, and we don't really have time to go through the entire campaign of the Pacific. I'm a big fan of this history. <laughs> I know it cold from Tarawa on, uh, the Battle of Tarawa, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You get to a point on the Battle of Peleliu. And by the way, I was on an amphibious assault ship named after the Battle of Peleliu. Oh, wow. So I understand amphibious warfare very well. And uh, and so Mary Greer, to help prepare for that, she went through a number of the, of these Japanese reports. And I, mm-hmm. that was amazing to me. It, do you remember talking about that? And you talked about Hirohito, Emperor Hirohito had a marine biology degree. So he supported that science. Would you expound on that just a bit? Yeah, well, in Mary Sears, um, in in one of her oral histories, she talked about the fact that the closer they got to Japan, the better some of their data was because the Japanese had published uh, before the war so much information, so much data about uh, the oceans and the waters surrounding Japan. Because you know, Japan is an island nation; they're very much dependent on the on the ocean. Um, and then the fact that Emperor Hirohito was a marine biologist. He funded uh, the creation of a, of a gigantic marine laboratory, but also I believe the Japanese fleet had about 75 survey vessels that had been going out for years and collecting data on the waters around Japan and other islands nearby. And that was the kind of critical data that the uh, amphibious forces needed to minimize mishaps uh, when going uh, going ashore in some of these uh, hotly contested areas. And so they would get these articles. Some might be have already been translated uh, and, and published in, in the in, in English, but others had to be had to be translated according to Mary Sears. And it was Mary Greer uh, who tracked all these things down because Mary Greer had already compiled while she was at the University of Washington, uh, this amazing oceanographic index on the Pacific Ocean. And basically, in the era that predated computers, people had to create these indexes so that you could find articles and books and chapters on specific areas. So this information had to be compiled and it had to be cross-referenced. And Mary Sears had published one of the few oceanographic indexes on the Pacific Ocean, and she knew this area better than anyone. So the fact that she was the one going to the libraries was a huge gift. It was a huge advantage for our armed forces. And, you know, Mary Greer hasn't really gotten the recognition she deserves either. Uh, none None of these people have. Uh, they all just gave up whatever lives they had and moved across the country and embraced the challenge of this mission, and they stayed for the duration of the war. Indeed, and, and well said, Kate. Uh, you know, interesting about uh, Peleliu, and this is in the Palau Islands, and I have visited there before uh, in my job at NOAA. I was in charge of a coral, the U.S. Coral Reef Task Force, and we had a meeting there, and we did much work to advance coral reef science um, another group, though, I work with that have, I've profiled on my show is Project Recover, and they use a bunch of cutting-edge tech, like the drones you saw at the Naval Oceanographic Office, to search for uh, wreckage uh, from the war, World War II, 
and and repatriate and, and find the remains of missing in action service members and then repatriate those remains. And uh, and so that that's an interesting connection there. When I read about uh, Peleliu and Palau, I, I, I uh, that, that interests me because that, that we're we're still going there, and they're using information like that um, that Mary Greer found um, for 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 now the the follow up, if you will, um, and and the returning of all those who went over there, and for those who didn't come back. Uh, so that that interested me, and I'm glad that was that was profiled there in, in your book. Um, but now uh, there is there's a couple other aspects of the book I wanted to profile that, that there were people who recognized this group and Mary particularly. And I remember I read a few examples of, of, of people like an intelligence officer early on um, thanking Mary. Do you, do you can you recall any of those? Absolutely, I do. Uh, there was one particular intelligence officer who had been at Normandy and was later in the Pacific and uh yeah, they people, you know, having served in the military yourself, you know that people don't put their names on reports all the time or the people that should be credited or not credited. But Mary Sears was thanked, you know, please thank Mary Sears for uh, the information she put out on X, Y, or Z um, location. And not only was this information used uh, during the during combat operations, but uh, as soon as the uh, peace agreement was signed and the Japanese surrendered, we had to get, I think it was something like 60,000 prisoners of war out of uh, Japan, Korea, China, and wherever they had been uh, hidden away in these islands. And of course, no one was going to pave the way for us to get them. So that's when the Janus reports got rolled out again to be used in Operation blacklist to recover our prisoners of war right that that was interesting and i that i that's something new that i learned and in fact not just through recovering the, the prisoners of war but the occupation of japan itself right but it makes perfect sense because we had to uh, persecute the occupation ourselves we had to find those shores and the again the japanese you know they they weren't sending us maps or data telling us here's here's a way to get here and occupy our country, we had to figure it out in a hurry because we had to just make sure that, uh, you know, that their troops were disarmed and and that sort of thing. And I remember one uh, admiral saying something like, uh, not only were the Janus reports the best resource, in some cases they were the only resource we had to use to get uh, to to where we needed to go after the war. Right, right. And I, uh, you know, having had this as my profession in the Navy, you know, I was very attentive to the fact when they were recognized by that. And, and I, what I, I appreciated about this example where they wrote a Janus report on the southwest part of Japan, that they did, even though we never invaded Japan, it was still used. And, and this is the nature of, of the work is this environmental information is applicable for training and all sorts of um, other applications. So it's never wasted effort. Um, then I, what I also found is the flip side, uh, interesting, where there are instances in this story of our campaign through the Pacific and World War II where the information wasn't necessarily used. And um, I, your chapter on Iwo Jima talks about some examples of this. And uh, do you recall any of those for our listeners? 
Well, you know, the thing about Iwo Jima is uh, there was no Janus report on Iwo Jima. And I was bracking my brain, Tim, during the, especially the early years of working on this. Where, why did they leave Iwo Jima off the Janus list? And for a long time, I was convinced it was just missing. But then I found out that Iwo Jima was a late addition uh, to the assault list. The initial plan was to was to uh, head via Formosa, the current day Taiwan, and go up on that left side over to Japan. And there was some tension, not surprisingly, between General MacArthur and and Admiral Nimitz and Joint Chiefs about which way we were going to ultimately go. And the decision was made: No, we're not going to go through Formosa, which had a very big Janus report. We're going to go through Iwo Jima and Okinawa. So Iwo Jima was a late addition, and I I think there simply wasn't time to do a detailed analysis of the oceanographic uh, and topographic conditions there. And I think it did hurt the troops somewhat. I think they were aware of some of the perils of Iwo Jima, uh, but still, there you know, with the uh, steep landing beaches and the waves. Uh, many, many landing boats splintered, and that wasn't even the worst of it and crash. It was that they blocked, you know, the progress of the invasion because, you know, all this stuff had to be towed or blown up by uh, the underwater underwater demolition guys. They had to be blown up so that the beaches could be cleared and the uh, assault could continue. And then there was that issue with the black sand where, uh, you know, the, the sand at Iwo Jima, was unique in that it was volcanic and vehicles and so forth just sunk into the sand. They could not get across it. And even men had trouble getting across it. They had to crawl on their hands and knees to get across this uh, uh, this sand. I, I do think that some the oceanographic unit may have done some limited studies. Uh, I was never able to find those studies, but now that I know the librarian at the Ocean Naval Oceanographic oh, yeah. Office a little bit better. He's going to help me look for some of these that I could never find. You know, that that library is not open to the public. And I was not able to access that library, but they have told me I can come back anytime and uh, take a look at whatever they have on some of these things. So, yeah, Iwo Jima was not studied in depth. I don't know for sure, but I I have to think that if Mary Sears and Mary Greer could have gotten their hand on Iwo Jima, they would have produced an amazing report on it. Right, right. That that's I tried to get to that point. So thanks for saying it much more clearly. Uh, <laughs> I, you also though mentioned something I found interesting. Again, I think this whole book is interesting. You talked about going back before Iwo Jima. Um, you mentioned the UDTs in um, with Lieutenant Commander Draper Kaufman, very famous. And this was, I believe, for the uh, either Saipan and um, the the Mariana Islands campaign. And you, um, I worked with the Navy SEAL headquarters. So again, another part of this book that just totally connected to me. And um, you have a quote. Uh, you had someone review the book for you, who's a <laughs> friend of mine and a mentor, and. He, personal hero, actually. Um, do you want to talk about that? Right. Well, uh, I was very fortunate to uh, make a connection with Admiral William McRaven. And, you know, he he lives here 
uh, in Austin, and he was the chancellor of the University of Texas. And and uh, I would say he is definitely a hometown hero here in Austin. And uh, I was able to have a conversation with him about uh, the uh, underwater demo demolition team, who were the precursors to the Navy SEALs. And we talked about uh, some of their techniques that they utilized during the war, such as the uh, string reconnaissance where the men would mark their bodies so that they could tell the depths depending on the lines on their bodies. And then they would unreal, uh, you know, fishing line that had been knotted at uh, particular intervals so they could tell what is the depth a certain distance uh, from shore. And Admiral McRaven had, had utilized these same, trained in and utilized these same techniques. So uh, we had a really good discussion about that, and he offered to uh, to read my book, which which was just great. But you know, I can't say enough about these uh, these UDTs, what these men put themselves through uh, during the war. I've read some I've read some more about it uh, recently, and it, it they are true heroes of the war because they would they would go onto these enemy beaches the night or sometimes the morning before an invasion and it's swimming in just their swim trucks with some fins. And, and it, it, sometimes they had to plant explosives to clear obstacles like at Normandy uh, or channels through coral reefs. And other times they were just making measurements, but they were always in harm's way. They were always subject to snipers and, and, um, were many were killed or, or injured. Uh, these men really are unsung heroes of World War II. Absolutely agree. Uh, and, and for our listeners, UDT stands for Underwater Demolition Teams, and these were the the Navy frogmen that eventually became Navy SEALs. And you're right, there's volumes published on these uh, brave uh, sailors, and uh, I, I I like that you introduced that too. In fact. Uh, sharing with you, fast forwarding to modern times, my my first command in the Navy as a Navy commander was a new unit of oceanographers that we stood up dedicated to support Navy SEALs. And, and before, Navy SEALs never had a real dedicated ocean and weather uh, team. They usually were getting like a weather center would send them some d remote support. Um, but we realized at, as the war on terror was kind of kicking into gear uh, with Iraq and Afghanistan, that Navy SEALs needed dedicated environmental support, and I was the first commanding officer of that that command. And I I've worked with submarine officers, aviators, amphibious warfare units. The the the, the type of um, the combat uh, missions that that use weather and oceanography more than any other are Navy SEAL missions. They use everything. They they don't they don't dismiss any information because you know everything is really precision ex executed and, um, and it was always life and death. And uh, ultimately I, I, that was a, that was a really heavy tour for me, but it was impactful. And I think, um, and you, you also bring some of that, the origins of that in your book. Um, well, Kate, I just, we just gave the wave tops of just a terrific book that your book, again, it is Mar lethal tides, Mary Sears and the Marine scientist who helped win world war two. I encourage um, everyone to check it out. Uh, you can look it up online, and um, and I, I tell you, it's something really to enjoy. You'll see the origins of, of many of the 
the data and technology elements that really advance our American blue economy today and how they originated in the U.S. Navy. And by a very inspiration, inspirational uh, young woman, Mary Sears. Now, uh, I have so much to say, but I, I wanted to ask you if you had any um, final thoughts for our listeners uh, on Mary Sears and your book, Kate. You know, what I've realized, uh, Tim, traveling around across the country is how much Mary Sears means to so many, so many people that people that people write to me that knew her, uh, that worked with her. Um, And I would just say part of her legacy is this thousand person group at the Naval Oceanographic Office. these people who continue to support the troops and and do this again, another group in my mind of unsung heroes at the Naval Oceanographic Office, and it you know it it her, their lineage can be directly traced to the fact that Mary Sears was willing to take what some saw as a dead end job. She was willing to sit at that desk and accept whatever challenges were thrown at her. That. This office exists today, and yeah, maybe somebody would have figured it out some other way, but after the war, uh, she was named the first division director of what was the first division of oceanography, and then that grew into uh, the Naval Office today. So, I mean, you know, that is a heck of a legacy uh, for someone that was never even allowed on ships. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, and it's it's really bigger. You, it, Kate, it's the Naval Oceanographic Office, but they're part of a, a larger command that I was in charge of. It's now it's a one-star admiral command that includes all the sailors and the number and the Naval Observatory and these uh, other offices called the Fleet Numerical Meteorology and Oceanography Center. And this is a large group of naval oceanographers and meteorologists and hydrographers that, that that's really, she started that. And then if you even want to go bigger, uh, they had a great deal of influence on my past agency, the Naval Ocean, uh, pardon me, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, which is really like Naval Oceanography, but for the nation. And, and there's tie-ins in your book about that too. So, I mean, Mary Sears' influence is was profound. And I, I think you just, uh, you outline it in such an enjoyable way. It's so well-written. Um, and in fact, the very beginning of your book is terrific your prologue, I'm going to read it for our listeners to maybe bring them in and get, encourage them to get a copy. You said, Mary overcame gender, age, rejection by the Navy to find herself in a global two-ocean war making life-saving predictions on the eve of major battles. Wow, what a story. Um, I'm going to finish with one more quote, but uh, if you have anything else to share, Kate, this, this is your chance. No, I can't wait to hear what you're going to say. So you just have at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, being a, being a Scripps graduate, uh, I was really interested in Roger Ravel, a former director of Scripps. And on Mary's 80th birthday, and this is great, I think you have put this in the epilogue. You also quoted me in the epilogue, and I'm very grateful for <laughs> that. Um, that uh, on her 80th birthday, Roger said, and I, I, the words couldn't be more true, Because the federal government has very little memory, it is generally forgotten that the first oceanographer of the Navy in modern times was a short, rather shy, prim wave lieutenant junior grade. They underestimated the powerful natural force that is Mary Sears. 
So with that, I want to thank you so much, Kate Musumichi. Freight show. You did terrific. And uh, I I can't wait for uh, uh, to meet you in person sometime. It was my pleasure to be on this show. This has been a uh, fascinating conversation, Tim. Oh, my pleasure. Well, folks, in this latest episode of the American Blue Economy podcast, we looked at the life and legacy of Mary Sears, a naval oceanographer who was critical to the U.S. victory in World War II and the development of the naval oceanography community, which I served in for 32 years and which I was in charge of, of for the last three of them. I hope you found it fascinating and how interesting it has been for the Navy to influence the growth of our ocean science and technology community and the blue economy. Please join us for our November episode where we will look at nature-based solutions in the American blue economy. This is your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet, CEO of Ocean STL Consulting. Thank you for joining us, shipmates. I look forward to getting underway with you next time.